Okay, I understand you've been going through a series in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, you might like to turn to Luke chapter 22. I understand that the verses are going to come up on the screens around the room as well. And uh, we've come to really the climax of the story. Um, We've seen that Jesus uh, has taught many wonderful things. He's healed many people. He's really made quite a name for himself as we're going to come to see uh, in this passage. And now we're coming into the final week before he is crucified. And uh, we're going to read verses. uh, We're going to start in verse 1 of of chapter 22. We're going to read quite a chunk of scripture. So let's, let's go for this. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so that they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. So by this point, Jesus is so popular that they have to look to arrest him at nighttime because if they go for him in the daytime, when the city of Jerusalem is filled with people celebrating the Passover, there would have been anarchy. There would have been riots. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so that we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. And then they have this argument, which is the most ridiculous thing you can possibly imagine, about who's the greatest among them. They've just heard from Jesus that he's going to have to suffer and die. They've just had this this really somber meal together where they've, they've had this, this wine and this bread. They're arguing and Jesus says to them that you're going to have to be a servant. If you, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to become low like a servant. And then he finishes this particular discourse with this. You have stayed with me in my time of trial 
And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. I've called this message the Last Supper that is not the Last Supper. If you want a shorter title, you could call it the Heavenly Minded Man. Now, you and I, we don't always live what we say we believe. There's often this disconnect between what we confess and what we actually do at street level. Do you, do, you, do you get what I'm saying? There's often this kind of separation between the doctrines that we believe, that we read about in the Bible, and the choices we make and the anxieties we feel. And, and nowhere really is that experience most than in what we say we believe about eternity and what we actually live out in the light of that. As Christians, we, we say we believe in the afterlife. We celebrate that this life is not all that there is, that this moment in time is not all that there is. We say that we are hardwired for forever, but often we live with the compulsion, the anxiety, the, the depression perhaps, the drivenness of what the author Paul Tripp calls eternity amnesia. We, we kind of forget we, 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 if we're quizzed on it, if someone asks us, do you believe in the afterlife? Do you believe that there's something beyond the grave? We say, yes, absolutely I do. I'm a Christian. That's what I'm to believe. And yet we live with this kind of, this drivenness, I must keep doing more, or, or this anxiety of, is everything going to be okay? We live with this kind of unsettledness in our heart that actually shows that there's this big disconnect between what we actually believe and what we actually do. The Bible tells us that as Christians, we are pilgrims, we're strangers, we're aliens, we're ambassadors working far from home, and yet we get so focused on the opportunities ahead of us, we get so uh, weighed down with the responsibilities we have, the needs we have, the deep desires of our heart, we get so uh, caught up in these that we lose sight of the eternity that is to come. We lose sight of the, the, the amazing future that we have. We've become attached to this world and we forget that our true home is actually in heaven. And as a society in the UK, we've by and large left God behind. It might be five or six percent of this country that believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And as a society, we've then become more and more earthly minded and more and more here and now minded and more and more, you know, live life to the full and get what you can out of this life. And there's a, there's a danger, really, that as Christians, we can kind of get sucked into that. And many of us here, we know that to be true for our own lives. And we have these thing called, things called bucket lists, the things that we should do, the things that we must do before we kick the bucket. And what's on that list usually depends on how much money we have. What's on that list usually depends on how affluent we are. It's quite a, a privilege, really, of the Western world to have bucket lists. I want to swim with dolphins, or I want to see this amazing sunset over this bay. I want to see that band in concert. They are the, they are, I want to see them. I want to see them before I die. I want to travel to such and such a place. I want to get a tattoo, whatever it might be. We have these bucket lists, and a bucket list is entirely understandable. It's an entirely understandable thing to have if this life is all that there is. It's an entirely understandable thing, even if... You believe that you will one day be a ghost and sort of, you know, float around. It's an entirely understandable thing to have a bucket list. But for Christians who believe that there will be a physical new 
creation, that there will be an eternity where we'll have physical bodies, where we'll enjoy a physical earth, where we'll enjoy physical things, a bucket list doesn't really make much sense. Certainly the type of bucket lists that are quite common in our culture. It doesn't really make much sense if we really do believe that there are great things ahead of us. It doesn't make much sense to have these things that we must do, must achieve, must experience before we die. It's okay to have some things that you are asking God for. It's okay to have some ambitions. But it's not, my, it's not okay if we have these bucket lists as a sense of saying, well, you know, I'm, I need to have these opportunities. I need to have these experiences because this is my only chance to experience these things in a physical world. That's contradictory to what we've read in this passage. I don't know if you spotted this but we're going to dive into it and see it in a little deeper way. We're going to look at the earthly-minded man, and we're going to look at the heavenly-minded man. Firstly, we're going to look at Judas Iscariot. Now, Judas is the villain of the story. He's traveled around with Jesus for a few years. He's been one of Jesus' closest friends. He's heard Jesus' amazing teaching week in, week out, and he sells his friend. He betrays his friend for 30 coins, which is equivalent of about a thousand pounds. He's the disciple that no one names their kids after. Now in this room, there's probably a bunch of Matthews and Johns and Simons and Peters. There's no Judases in this room. I can guarantee it. I've never met a Judas. You probably never have and you probably never will. No one's going to name their kid after this guy. And yet there were two Judases amongst Jesus' disciples. Wouldn't you hate to be the other one? Every time you traveled around to different places, say, are you, the, are you the guy that betrayed you? No, I'm not that one. And it's unsurprising that he ends up be called, be, being called Thaddeus in other places. Kind of cha- I would change my name if I were him. So I kind of distance myself from the other Judas. Now, Judas, is, he's the bad guy. He's the villain of the story. We read that Satan entered Judas. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't think you know what that means. But what we can safely say is that This wasn't something that just happened to Judas. He was acting of his own volition. He was already compromising in a big way. He didn't just suddenly get overcome by evil as this evening approached. He had opened a door to the influence of Satan in his life long before this moment. So he was the treasurer of the group. So when the disciples got money, it went to Judas. He looked after it. When they needed money for food, he gave them the money. And we read in John chapter 12 that Jesus, he goes to eat at his friend's house. There's these siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They live together. And Jesus goes for dinner at their house. And whilst he's there, Mary cracks open this really, really expensive perfume. Literally, there was no kind of spray function on this. She had to break it open and and she washed Jesus' feet. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I go to Superdrug or Boots, if I happen to be there to pick up some things, I will always go to the, if I've got time, I'll go to the aftershave section. I'll find the most expensive aftershave I can, and I'll try it on as a little tester. I can smell rich for the day. I don't know if you ever do that. Anyone else do that? Just me? Just me as a cheapskate? You do it as well. Well done, with a perfume, yes. Now, this perfume that Mary breaks over Jesus' feet is worth a whole year's wages. So if we take an average salary in the UK, that perfume is worth £25,000. And Judas, when he sees this, he is fuming. He is absolutely mad. And he says, 
that perfume could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. Which sounds a very, very good thing to say, doesn't it? And yet, Judas is just covering up for the fact that he's actually stealing from the group. We see that Judas was pocketing money for himself. So really, when he says that could have been sold for the poor, he's thinking, well, maybe I could have some of that money for myself. It will go to the poor. Yeah, the majority will go to the poor, but I'll keep a bit for myself. Judas's schemes, Judas's scheme of values was so deeply different from Mary's that just a little while after that moment, he would do the opposite of sacrificing lavishly for Jesus, and he would sell Jesus for a thousand pounds. He wasn't in it for the poor at all. He was in it for himself. He didn't have his mind on the eternal reward. He was set on what he could take from this life. His mind was set on the things of earth and he was motivated by greed. He had all that he needed. Jesus and his disciples weren't wealthy, but they had clothes on their backs, they had shoes on their feet, they had food for their stomachs. And Judas is able to describe other people as the poor. So they weren't poor. They weren't struggling for money. And so Judas, he's greedy for more. He wanted to take some extra stuff for himself. We don't know what he was stealing it for, but what he had wasn't enough for him. And Jesus is teaching about, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. Instead, store up treasure for yourself in heaven. Store up treasure for yourself in heaven. That teaching, Judas had sat next to Jesus and, and had heard that. And yet it hadn't gone into his heart. Maybe at one time he had been convicted by it. Maybe at one time he thought, you know what, I need to stop. This behavior needs to stop. But I'm not going to tell anyone, I'm just going to stop. But actually by bringing it into the light, he could have got free. He could have got free from this, this love of money that meant he was siphoning off money for himself. He had sat and listened to Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be given to you. Jesus heard that. Judas heard that and thought to himself, well, maybe that is true. Maybe, maybe God will provide for all I need. And yet whatever happened from hearing that to moments later or days later when he thought, maybe God won't provide. Maybe he won't give me all that I need. Maybe he had plans for this money. Maybe he was just an impulsive spender. Maybe he just wanted to have a few big nights out. We don't know what he was doing with this thousand pounds that he sold Jesus for. But listen, when we forget eternity, when we think that this is all that there is, this is what happens to us. We, we go seeking after more. We become greedy for more. And we think somehow more is going to satisfy. We think somehow, if only I have that, then I will be happy. If only, I, if only I had that little bit more. And we think that things of this earth will really do what only God can do. We seek satisfaction where it cannot be found. And living as an eternity amnesiac just doesn't work. It leaves you hoping that now will be the paradise that it will never be. Maybe you think that about your life. If I have a bigger house, then I really will have paradise on earth. If I have a, a better car that doesn't rattle when I drive, then, I, then it really will be paradise for me. I really will finally have rest and satisfaction for my heart. If only I have that relationship, 
If only I have that respect from that person. If only they would like me. When we lose sight of eternity and the great reward, the great joy that is before us, then we will go after more and more and it will not satisfy. It's so important to fix our eyes on the fact that what God has promised will surely come about. And we need reminding that there is more. There's more beyond this life. And when you live like there's more to come, you live in a radically different way. So we've looked at the earthly-minded man. We're now going to look at the heavenly-minded man, Jesus Christ. The man motivated by eternity. The man who lived for the eternal reward. Who lived for the joy that was set before him. This is evident in this passage today because Jesus mentions the kingdom of God four times in this passage. I don't know if you spotted it, but it's one of the most reoccurring words in this whole passage about the meal. The meal that's vitally important. But Jesus mentions the kingdom four times in this passage. What's the context? It's the future feast. It's food and drink with his friends in eternity. This is not the last supper. We see in verse 15, Jesus says, I've been very eager to eat this meal with you before my suffering begins. I tell you that I won't eat this meal again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says in verse 18, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. And then as we saw at the very end of this discourse, he says, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink with me in my kingdom. His mind is on something that is way in the future. His mind is on something that is of eternal value. He's considering a great feast in the future. It's clear to him that this supper is not the last supper. This physical world is, is not all that there is. There will be a new physical creation saved for those who trust in Jesus. There will be. And it will be full of real things. We won't be floating around. If your image of heaven is that we'd just be like chubby babies with wings floating around, you, you're not being informed by the Bible. I'm really sorry to disappoint you. You are looking forward to those wings. We will be sitting with Jesus, feasting with him on a physical earth. And Jesus, is, Jesus has his mind on this. Now, he isn't omniscient when present on earth. He didn't know all things. In, in becoming human... In, in taking on flesh, he laid aside some of the rights and privileges of being God. And so there's some things he has to ask about. There's some things he doesn't know. He had to learn some things and he had to dig into the scriptures. We see again and again in, in the Gospels, he is quoting from the Old Testament. He needed to be in the word of God and he would have come across uh, places in like Isaiah 25 and he would have read of the great feast that was to come when all was made new. And this is what it says in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. Amen. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. 
He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. What a glorious picture. He will swallow up death forever. And there will be a feast of the choicest wines and beautiful meat. And all of the shadow of this age, shadow of this earth, of the pain and the suffering and the anxiety and everything will be banished. This is the eternal glory that Jesus was looking forward to. This is what motivated him to the radical life he lived. This is what took him to the cross for the joy set before him. He went to the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the suffering because he had this joy in his mind of eternity with us, of this great feast. And the Apostle Paul, he charges us to keep our minds fixed on eternity also. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. We're to fix our eyes on that which is unseen. We're to fix our attention on it. When we do that, we won't go searching after the things of this earth, which we think are going to satisfy, but really don't. We don't lose heart, even though we find that we're wasting away. We don't lose heart, even when we go through great trials. We look to the unseen, and so often we're drawn to fix our eyes on that which is seen. So often we're drawn to fix our eyes on temporary things, things that take up our, uh, our, our, our mental energy. And Paul is calling the Corinthians to look up to the coming reality that Jesus is going to come back and he will dramatically fix things. It's appropriate that Jesus came as a carpenter because he, carpenters fix and restore. And he's going to fix and restore that which is broken and it's going to be brand new. It's going to be glorious. He's going to make all things new. He's the ultimate salvage artist and what he restores will be better than the original. The best that we enjoy here. The things that you enjoy here, the best things that you love and enjoy here are just a foretaste of what awaits us in this new earth where we'll be without sin and death and curse. And in that world, we're going to find Jesus to be the fountain of all joy. This endless fountain that we've sung about this morning. He's going to be that for us. Believers who think heaven will be boring, show that they really believe that God is boring. Listen, heaven won't be boring. You won't be bored in heaven. You won't find yourself thinking, what shall I do now? Hell will be boring. Heaven will be glorious. And we await a beautiful new universe and reality. God himself is going to come and dwell with us. And if we have that start to finish perspective, if we understand that God created all things, we're in the middle, he's going to make all things new that have been corrupted by our sin and wrongdoing. 
if we have that understanding, it gives us some perspective on bucket lists, doesn't it? It gives us some perspective on what we want to do with our time. In light of this future glory, we should either have no bucket list or our bucket list should look very, very different to what it does. We mustn't assume that this is our only chance to have fun and to see and do incredible things. What's limited now is the opportunity to serve the poor. What's limited now is the opportunity to share Jesus with people. What's limited now is the opportunity to draw together a glorious bride for Jesus, to see the church shine. That's limited to now. That we get to, <coughs> excuse me, we get to so paint this beautiful bride for Jesus. We get to so uh, invest in the church. That's limited to now. It's limited to this lifetime. That's why the great writer C.S. Lewis said this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. It's Christians who are, who are so enamored with the treasures of this world, who think that what we get to experience now is the final, the final thing, it's the real deal, the pinnacle of experience. It's those Christians who are least effective in this life. But conversely, those who are meditating on eternity, those who are motivated not by earthly reward, but by heavenly reward, are those that are most effective here on earth. By meditating, I don't mean sitting cross-legged and humming. I mean filling your mind with the truth of the Bible. Filling your mind with the truth of God's word. That is how you will be effective in this life. Allowing this to change our whole experience, our whole existence, as we see that we really are pilgrims, that we really are ambassadors working from home, far from home. We really are strangers in this world, exiles. When you see those words in the Bible, when you see those words, allow those words to kind of be a trail by which you come back to remembering, I don't belong here. My home is in heaven. When you see those things, follow the trail. So I wonder, how much do you dream of eternity? How much do you allow your mind just to kind of think, what's it going to be like? How often do you dwell upon it? How much do you think about this great banquet that's awaiting us? Revelation 19 gives us just another angle of this very same feast. It's what it says in verse 6. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. We know that this is the, the sound of a vast number of people. So loud that it sounds like the ocean waves are crashing. Just imagine this big feast for a moment. It's so loud. And this is what this crowd are saying. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the white linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words that come from God. It's a wedding feast. It's not just any feast. It's a wedding feast. And we've got 
eight people, eight couples at our church getting married this year. That's certainly a record, and I'm very glad that all I have to do is rotate ties. I don't have to do any more than that and shine my shoes. And as we prepare these people, we're trying to hammer home to them that this is more than about a day. It's more than about just one day. It's about a lifetime. And yet inevitably, all kinds of uh, thoughts come in of what are we, where are we going to have the reception? Can we afford it? Where are we going to, how what are we going to eat? Where are we going to seat people? Where are we going to sit? The weird uncle, how are we going to uh, so palm him off to someone else that's going to look after him for the afternoon? All these kind of thoughts come into our minds. Listen, Jesus has got this feast organized. He's got this one sorted. He is picking the best food. He knows the very best things to bring in. He's picking the best wines. Now, I'm not a wine connoisseur. If I'm having an alcoholic drink, I'll have a cool lager. That's my bag. Now, if I have to buy wine for hope when we're hosting people in our home, I will look for the wine that has been reduced the most. So if it was $12.99 and now it's $4.99, I think, that must be a good wine. Do you do that as well? Anyone know nothing about wine like me? Well, that's what I do. Now, Jesus, he is a, he's a wine connoisseur to be all wine connoisseurs because he has made the grapes. He knows exactly what each grape does, and he's got the best wine in for this feast. He's been working on the very best meal, not the knockdown price. And he's working out the seating arrangements, and I think he has a few surprises up his sleeves for us. Maybe you've come to faith in Peterborough. Maybe this is where you came to know Jesus. I wonder if he might sit you next to the very first person who brought the gospel to Peterborough hundreds of years ago. Maybe you're from another nation. Maybe you're from Nigeria or the Philippines. Maybe you're from India. Maybe you'll be sat next to the, the, the first people who sacrificed it all to take the gospel to your nation who went through great trial in order to bring the good news of Jesus to people. Maybe you'll be sat next to them. Maybe Jesus will give you a special treat. Maybe you'll be sat next to people that you served in the kids' work for a dozen or more years. And they may say to you, hey, you every month would come to my group, and even though you were tired, and even though you had a hectic weekend, you came and you served and even though you never thought it was going in, and even though you never knew what happened to me, I gave my life to Jesus. And it was all because of what you sowed into me. Maybe you'll be sat next to that person. Maybe you'll be sat next to someone who you supported on your life money course. And they, they said to you at that meal, hey, in my hour of need, when I couldn't see a way forward, you gave me just what I needed. And, and it was a sacrifice for you, week in, week out, turning up giving of your energy and time. And yet, listen, I'm here because of you. Maybe Jesus will treat you like that. And I can guarantee there's one thing you will not say on that day. There's one thing that you will not say as you survey the multitudes, as you look across the room and you see hundreds of thousands, millions and billions of people. One thing that you will not say is this, I wish I hadn't given that time to Jesus. I wish I hadn't served as I did in the kids' work. I wish I hadn't given my all to the youth group. I wish I hadn't turned up early on Sundays to set up PA and worship. I wish I hadn't given in that offering in March. No, no one will be saying that. No one will say that. 
As you look and you see what you've sown, the seeds you've sown, you see some of the fruit of that, you will say, if there's any chance we'd even have regret in that time, I wish I'd given more. You may not even think that because you'll be so delighted with Jesus. But none of you will say, I wish I hadn't given my all. Listen, Life Church, as you give this week, as you give next week, in the weeks to come, you're giving into something that will have eternal consequences. And, and as Valter has already said, even when you have a lovely building that's right for your needs, there will be more giving financially, there'll be giving of time and energy, and nothing, nothing that you do for the Lord is ever in vain. And you will be glad and you will rejoice that you've given sacrificially. You will be glad. And he will provide for your every need. Fix your eyes on heaven. Fix your eyes on the joy that's coming. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And when we have communion, as we're going to have in just a moment, yes, it's right that we look back. Yes, it's right that we reflect on the cross Yes, it's right that we remember the cost. We remember the blood shed for us, the body broken for us. It's right that we look back, but in this meal also, there's an invite to look forward. Jesus says, I'm going to drink wine with you. He's going to drink wine with us in eternity. It says in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is saying to them, hey, don't forget to keep taking the bread and wine. Don't forget to, don't leave behind the Lord's Supper he says, when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's an eternal thing that we look forward to here when we have the bread and the wine. We look forward and we say, Jesus, you're coming again. And you're going to make all things new. And I want to give my all to you in light of the fact you've given everything for me. For the joy that was set before you, Jesus, you did not despise the cross. And for this joy that's set before me, I want to give my all to you. Should we stand together? I'd love to pray, and then maybe Hannah or Valter, whoever needs to lead us through this time, I want to just lead us in prayer as we come into land. Should we just maybe, if you feel comfortable to do this, just lift out your hands, just a sign of surrender to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we today want to say we want to be heavenly-minded people. We want to be those that fix their eyes on the joy that is ahead of us. This new creation, this new earth, this great feast, this wedding feast where you, Lord Jesus, will be united with your bride, the church, forever. And what a party it's going to be. Lord God, we want to be heavenly-minded people. Why don't you just even say that to him under your breath or out loud. I want to be heavenly minded. I want to be focused on eternity. I want to make decisions in light of eternity, Lord. I want to give my all to you in my workplace. I want to give my all to you in service of my church. I want to give my finances, which are only yours anyway, Lord. And I want to consider the fact that someday I will see some of the fruit of the seeds that I've sown. Someday I'll see the fruit of my sacrificial giving. Someday, Lord, you will have this great feast for us. I pray for these 
wonderful people here. Father, would you bless this church? Would you so pour out your abundant blessing on them? I pray that you would teach them things about prayer in the years to come. Teach them things about faith in the years to come. Lord God, I pray that you would create a radically generous church here in light of your radical generosity to us. And Lord Jesus, now we consider the amazing sacrifice that you gave for us. We consider your body broken. We consider your blood spilt for us, Lord Jesus. On that cross, you were there in our place. That was the punishment we deserved, and you took it, Lord Jesus. And now, in exchange, we get to have this perfect right relationship with God the Father, all because of you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you didn't remain in the grave. You rose again, and that you're coming back. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. We praise your name. Amen. Amen.